If you would bow your head in prayer for a moment with me before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, this season we're mindful of the blessings that you've poured out upon us. Culturally, we take some time to recognize it. But if we don't take time every single day as blood-bought believers to gaze heavenward and thank you for what you've done, we surely are remiss. Yet our hearts are so easily distracted, our minds so easily wandered. Therefore, we are thankful for the great gift of gathering weekly. And for some of us more often, at every opportunity you provide for fellowship with the beloved. Father, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is unity. And the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Father, is the basis of our fellowship and our relationship one to another. I pray that even this evening, as we open your scriptures, that our hearts would be stirred, that this might be, Lord, to us, a precursor for the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we look forward to the finality of history, where you demonstrate your great power in full and manifest form, and all of the elect are gathered in that great feast, and they sing as a great multitude praises to the Lamb that was slain forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for the moments, the glimpses of eternity we share until that time. I pray that you'd open our hearts to the scriptures. Let the Spirit guide us in our understanding. Holy Spirit, guide me in the proclamation. It is only your work that is effectual. And so we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a grace to be together and to worship with God's people today. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to do so. We've already heard the opening of the book of Titus in Paul's salutary form, if that's the adjective form of salutation. So my title for this message today is simply that, Dear Titus. Now, if you were to sit down and write a letter to one of uh, your close friends, which is getting to be kind of a lost art these days, what with uh, media the way it is and all, You might open it with those two words, dear, and then the person to whom your letter is addressed. Well, Paul does the same, but his dear Titus is a little longer than ours may be. And by my count in our English translation, it's 92 words or so with a 70 word parentheses. So Paul opens his letter in a profound way. And it's because this letter is for a profound purpose. The introduction and context to Timothy As we look at it, we're reminded of the historical background of the book of Titus that served to provide a timeless application of ecclesiastical instruction for the church universal. That is, God had ordered circumstances sovereignly by his power in the island of Crete and through the instructions that were needful for one man who would plant a church and encourage churches that were planted, namely Titus, God providentially ordained those circumstances so that the three chapters that were written to that individual would benefit us timelessly today. As we look at the background and context of this book, we find Titus, the receiver of this letter, was a Gentile convert, a first-generation believer, right out of the pagan world. And he was also a very... uh, Fortunate fellow, a direct disciple of the Apostle Paul, traveled with him on a number of his missionary journeys. Therefore, Titus could well serve as a prototype church planter in a pagan context. He was called to establish a multi-generational 
outpost of the church of Jesus Christ on this island of Crete. As we look back through the lens of history, the best we can figure in the society that Titus was born into, this culture, both inside and outside the professing church, presented extreme challenges to the longevity and the health of the fledgling early church in this region. Secular, humanistic hedonism without. Uh, man is the measure of all things. The uh, Greeks and their uh, values prevailed. And mostly everyone was concerned with how to serve self. If they had had media like we have in their day, I'm sure social media platforms would just be all abuzz with the latest and greatest Greek looks and fashions and all of the selfish pursuits that you could buy at prices uh, at any range and with all sorts of trivial uh, things to purchase around them in the markets of their day, much like ours, I would say. In this uh, region where, as I say, this humanistic context existed without, there were also problems within, within the church, this very uh, early nascent church, the self-serving malignant false teaching was starting to pervade. And there are those then within the church who claim the name of Christ that threaten to snuff out this little flickering light of the gospel. Um, snuff it out, that is, uh, it could be extreme indefinitely. Perhaps you and I, as the lineage, spiritually speaking, of the early church would never know Christ if the church didn't take root and foothold during this time in outposts like the tiny island of Crete. Yet during this time, you might ask yourself, what would serve the purposes of grounding this church, encouraging it to be launched forward uh, successfully in a world of challenges? Well, today we might look through the aisles of our Christian bookstore and think, boy, they would need a lot of books and formulas and teaching series and television shows and conferences of how to market your church and first century Hellenism. But none of that was in fact available and none of it was prescribed. Instead, what we have is the book of Timothy as an example. Three chapters, small, concise, and vacuum packed, if you will, full of necessary words for this missionary effort. It is the gospel applied and sent from an able slave, a doulos in the Greek, of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, that was sufficient instructions for them to be rooted and grounded in the faith, even though there were pressures within and pressures without. This should be a reminder for us, namely that the word of God is sufficient. And when we begin to trust in other things, new and improved, a bigger and better, so to speak. The advertising slogans give us in the word of God. I will tell you, God is not mocked. And our efforts based on those false sources will surely fail. Let us pray that the church of Jesus Christ in this hedonistic land would repent to the standard of Christ's word. Better three chapters of Titus than reams and reams of basically, you know, modern CEO influence pro-growth plans. Lord, preserve your church. So Paul was getting straight to the bottom line in this book with a prescription for a healthy and thriving church of Jesus Christ. The book of Titus is structured around three what I call reprises, theological reprises, a repetition 
of the gospel applied. And the first one is our opening text today, where Paul opens with glorious truths of the eternal realities of our salvation in his salutation, introduction to his letter to Titus. The second reprise you could perhaps see in chapter 2, verses 11 and 14, where he breaks into his practical instruction, again recalling the glories of our great salvation. And the third one is in the final chapter, verses 4 through 7, and that's followed by perhaps what could be taken as a theme verse for the book of Titus. That would be chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, This saying, speaking of the gospel glories he had just expounded, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are, uh, are excellent and profitable for people. So what is Paul saying in this summary statement? That with the gospel as our foundation and then applied, the good works that the church will be spurred onto will be a sufficient goal and end to preserve them to ground them and to carry forth the faith into distant lands and into distant generations. Perhaps you've heard the old saw, the cliche, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. I'm sure you've heard that. I have a bit of a quibble with that statement. I, I suppose it's true as far as it goes, as far as you define religion. If you want to define religion as some man-designed basis of works unto salvation, then sure, Christianity is better described as a relationship. But I think a better statement is as follows. Christianity is a relationship that begets true religion. And that really is the theme of Titus. There is a true relationship that God makes with us through the blood, shed blood of his son, ransoming for himself an elect people unto something, unto good works, unto doing unto a religion that is to say true doctrine and so the themes the major themes in titus focus on these things number one true doctrine number two proper order number three ethical living you see christianity is a relationship that begets true religion just to get into the body of our message this morning which will just focus on the first four verses let us go back to our text in verse one paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm reading Timothy. I skipped over it. <laughs> Sounded familiar, didn't it? I and uh, there I am in 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Here we go. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the faith, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our, <coughs> excuse me, our Savior. <coughs> I'm heading for you for four brief points this morning exploring the anatomy of an apostolic salutation. How does an apostle address a letter? How does Paul say, dear Titus? And in so doing, what does he draw his reader's attention to? I submit to you four things this morning. Number one, calling and ministry. 
Number two, cooperative purpose. Number three, covenant of redemption. And number four, content of preaching. Now, it's uh, almost Christmas time, right? So right after Thanksgiving, you know, there's a committee that lobbies to hang lights at my house. I don't know if it's the same at yours. But we begin to think about the spangles that go on the tree and the lights we put up around the perimeter and run up our electric bills with the curious way we celebrate the season, right? So another curious way that we're all familiar with in our culture is presents, gifts. And invariably, they'll have a little tag on the top. And the tag, you open it up and it says to so-and-so, right? From so-and-so. So, -and -so. so uh, to Nikki, my lovely wife. Uh, from Ken, your, uh, your uh, lucky husband or w w whatever. Stuff the top of my head. You know, that's if I'm real creative. That's right off the top. I don't know if you guys realize that. I came up with that just off the top of my head. So that's an example of a fairly elaborate salutation by our culture standards. You know, usually, just to save time, it's, you know, to my oldest from dad or whatever. Well, Paul addresses his letter in a similar way. He says, Paul, a servant of God. Thank you so much. And in so doing, he's identifying the sender, right? Paul. So from Paul. Later, he says to Titus in verse 4. But instead of just from Paul to Titus, there is, as I briefly mentioned before, a 70-word aside. From Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of God's elect and, the knowledge, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and so on. And that's what we're going to focus most of our attention on today. How an apostle says or introduces a letter. First of all, let us notice that Paul identifies calling and ministry. He draws our attention to his calling in ministry, the qualifications, and this is extremely important because Titus himself will be called to verify other leaders in the church to make sure that they themselves are qualified to lead the body of Christ. And so we have this among the first phrases. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Let's focus on that first phrase. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Turn back with me to Matthew 22 briefly, if you would. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the apostles were called to record, to interpret, to imply, and to apply the Gospels. It struck me recently, as we were in a Matthew series at my church, that in chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, we have perhaps one of the most paradigmatic parables in Jesus' teaching. In other words, it establishes a pattern. It sets a paradigm. It is helpful to understand the nature, that is, of calling and ministry as we read parables like these. Notice Matthew 22.1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent... And in the Greek, that word apostolo, the similar root there to apostle, is what is featured. He sent his servants. And there again, as a repeat of our text, the term doulos is used, or, which means slave in the Greek, servant or slave. So the son, <clears throat> there's a feast called for a son. And the host of the feast sent his servants to call those, there's another important gospel word, who are invited 
to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Verse 4, he sent other servants. Again, apostello and doulos are featured. He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention. The record goes on. There's another group of servants in verse 6, it says, While the rest seized his servants, his doulos, treated them shamefully and killed them. Later it says in verse 10, And those doulos went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, for the wedding hall was filled with guests. And at the end we have in verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. I wanted to highlight a few sections of that parable because I think it provides for us a pattern of self-identification, of calling and ministry that the apostles pick up on. We see Paul using the same language to describe himself. Paul, a doulos of God, an apostello, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Remember the last phrase of our parable? For many are called, but few are chosen. That word chosen is electos. It's the same term to refer to the elect. And Paul indeed was one of these doulosses, if you will, servants. In Matthew 20, we reach back just a little bit into the record. And Jesus had given qualifying criteria for leadership. He says that those who are called to lead his church are different than Gentile rulers. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There's that doulos designation. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was so important that the church be able to identify and to confirm qualifications, servant-hearted, sacrificial slavery to God that would mark and characterize true gospel ministry and leadership. This becomes a pattern in the epistles. Philippians 1.1 opens with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a doulos again, a slave of his majesty, if you will. Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10, James 1.1, Jude 1.1. All of these epistles open with similar designations. This uh, idea of a servant who is called and appointed to go and to preach God's gospel to the elect in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the hardship, Paul meant to impress upon his readers so that they would know true gospel ministry when they saw it. In a way, Paul was also offering proof of his own authority. When we recall Matthew 20, 25, and 20 through 28, and that parable in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Paul is saying, by this measure, judge the veracity of my own ministry. Paul brought this testimony even before kings and people in authority. Acts 24, Acts 26, it didn't matter who he was speaking to because he represented the highest authority of all. He was a slave on commission from his sovereign, Jesus Christ. And when Paul, think of this context then, when Paul endured beatings and mockery and imprisonment and shipwreck, hardships, stonings of every sort, famine, 
This only served to, bo to bolster his credentials, did it not? The church could see that when he spoke and when he traveled, even though it was at great cost, that he was one who was a slave to his master. And his primary concern was not self-aggrandizement, was not padding his own pocket, the career ladder, influence, acclaim, fame of any sort, but instead to please his heavenly father, to hear from Jesus Christ, his master, well done, good and faithful servant. Each one of us ought to be mindful of this. Each one of us has a calling to sacrificially lay down our lives for Christ. What has Jesus instructed us, all of us as his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. So if times get difficult, just know that that often provides in God's sovereignty a greater ability to manifest the gospel under adverse conditions. So Paul would have his readers know the essence of calling in ministry, to recognize what true Christian service was. Secondly, he would have his readers know in this anatomy of an apostolic salutation, the cooperative purpose that he and the believers in Titus shared. Notice as we read again, 1-1 in Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then the next phrase, for the sake of the faith, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So why is Paul going to such great lengths to preach the gospel? He says it is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But looking a little closer at the original language, most uh, translations literally read according to. So we could also say, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Taking these two together, we can perhaps see a symbiotic or a mutual relationship between the office of the apostle and the affirmation of the elect who hear his words. And we can take an application of this for ourselves today. When you, believers in the pew, listening to your pastor preach, are diligent like good Bereans, and when you go to your scriptures to see if what is proclaimed from this pulpit and others is true, and then you add your hearty amen to what is verifiably sound, there is a synergy, if you will. There's a combination of the affirmation of the hearer and the proclamation of the leader that serves to advance the gospel. If your pastor, and I trust as I know and have interaction with the three other pastors represented here. If your pastors preach the scriptures according to their own terms, heed what they say. Listen, let your faith be built. Do not be a hearer uh, and, and not a doer. But instead, as you add to the word preached, your obedience, the gospel of Jesus Christ will multiply. And the witness of his great name will go on beyond where it is right now and begin to touch uh, areas of our community that may be as yet unreached, Lord willing. Secondly, in this cooperative purpose, Paul is interested in the knowledge of the truth being upheld among the elect. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And this speaks to the purpose of Paul that sound theology be treasured among the church, both in those who congregated there and those 
who would lead it. This touches on the importance of these gospel reprises. Turn with me to chapter 2. And let us read just briefly an overview of these times when Paul breaks in with a knowledge of theological truth that really staggers us in its weight and depth, even though it is brief by word count. 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, that is some of the richest, deepest, most profound theology that you will ever read. Again, chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our, our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These were the life-giving foundational words upon which this church would be fixed securely. This church would be fixed securely against the naysayers, the new and improved so-called ideas, the self-serving malignant cancer of false teaching. Paul has strong words to say for those who would differ with his gospel. He does not spare them as he even speaks in this book of those who would come in like wolves in sheep's clothing, to rout the faithful. In 112, he says, one of the Cretans, a, prophets, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To be, uh, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And both their minds and their consciousness, consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul tells the church in Crete that they need a good house cleaning. That heresy needs to be swept free from the pulpits and the thinking of those who profess the faith. And I would stretch out the application to our modern day and beg the question and raise the question, what percentage of our bookshelves are littered with these kind of additions and adding on and inventing stuff out of whole cloth and distracting us from the pure and undefiled truth of the word of God, which is sufficient to save and to ground his church. May we be about the cooperative purpose of gospel truth this day to shore up in our own affections first, a love for the true meat of God's word, an acquired taste so that the junk food of all of these false pretenses would begin to turn sour in our mouth. We would recognize it and counsel against it. Finally, cooperative purpose. There is a call to godliness. If the gospel takes root and foothold, you will see its effects. It will produce consequences in the life of the church. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, 
which accords with godliness. And in this section, or in, and in that phrase, Paul reminds us again that this relationship begets good works. It births faithfulness unto the gospel. Some of these things appear later in the context of, of Titus in 2.15, for instance. We have these instructions to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In chapter 3.1 then, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Speaking of proper conduct, ethical conduct and behavior for the people who name the name of Christ. They are to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then he breaks into that third glorious gospel reprise. And so we have instructions for godliness in the course of this book. And we ought to analyze, do an audit of our own lives if we profess the faith and to see if we are living in accord with our freedom in Jesus Christ and the calling to reflect him and to embrace that progressive and glorious calling of sanctification in our own lives. Thirdly, anatomy of apostolic salutation. Paul would draw our attention to something deep and profound in theological terms, we've uh, termed it in the Reformed camp, the covenant of redemption. And this simply means the eternal plan of God for the salvation of man. This was not some idea in process or plan B, but instead the glories of the gospel are so profound that they preceded us uh, in time immemorial before we ever uh, grace the earth with our presence, God, the uh, triune God, was in perfect harmony with himself and in fellowship. But in this time, there was amazing, there was an amazing truth that was a reality long before this world began. And we read of it in Titus 1-2. Again, Paul, after instructing uh, the faithful to embrace that which accords with godliness, he says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. First of all, I'll submit to you, you cannot understand the book of Titus with respect to God himself without an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. Notice what Paul does here in his use of language with respect to God. He says in verse three, by the command of God our Savior. In the very next verse he says, a grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So do you see that God and Jesus Christ are used interchangeably with respect to Savior, this is the divinity of Jesus Christ proclaimed. This book has one of the most profound declarations of the divinity, that is the Godhood, that fact that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, fully God, while fully man. And you find this in 2.13. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Our God is triune as we have sung this morning. God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And between them, they covenanted or promised or planned before time began, before the ages began, to gloriously reveal the nature and character of God in the salvation of His elect. And at the proper time, this was manifest for us to appreciate in history. Now, this is hard to grasp. And no mere mind will ever be able to exhaust its ramifications this side of glory. But Paul is begging us and his readers to try. He is encouraging us to make it our meditation to think about the nature of God and the character of his promise. To think about things like the divinity of Christ and the triune nature of God and the hope of eternity from eternity. The hope for eternity that we have, eternal life in Christ, that was promised from eternity, from the foundation of the world. Feast upon these great thoughts and you will have less room for the trivial, the banal, the passing, the fleeting, the sinful, the fleshly, and the decrepit nature of the old man. These are glorious thoughts. They deserve a featured place right at the beginning right at the salutation moment of a letter for a church who needs instruction how to be grounded in a culture of darkness. Under covenant of redemption, we're reminded by this language of the certainty of our salvation. Touch with me briefly on a cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 6. I'm doing a study on, in Hebrews as well, and I, I'm always reminded in other messages how the Bible reinforces itself. And in Hebrews 6, the promises of God are displayed with such an uh, underscoring as to their certainty that it seems we would be remiss without at least reading this passage from Hebrews 6, 16. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the eternal place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Another way of saying, and glorious terms to expound, what Paul says in his salutation to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And if God swears his promise is certain by himself, what greater assurance do we have of what God has established and no devil in hell and history and no scheme of man could ever move? What God has purposed is sure and secure. And this is the promise for the church. No matter how small the collection of believers may be, in this vast sea of depravity in the culture in which 
they shine and flicker as a light, they can be assured that on this basis, no matter the circumstances outside the walls and outside themselves, their hope, eternal assurance of salvation is secure because God has promised it with an oath by himself and he cannot lie. Finally, this morning, in considering what Paul would draw our attention to in opening instructions to a church, we have the content of preaching. In verse 3 it says, And at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So this is what Paul is referring to here. Is this hope of eternal life. This promise which was a reality before the ages began, but then was revealed through God's revelation progressively through time. And at the proper time manifest in his word, available for us to see what had been forever established in covenant with the Godhead through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now this is a powerful sentence, as I told you before, and we're breaking it into parts. And this last part I would like us to consider, first of all, is redemptive history. That God has a timeless plan which he has revealed in a timely manner as the scriptures have unfolded. This is so important for us to understand. This is an apologetic against the naysayers who want to treat the scriptures, cut it up and dice it up like they had different thoughts back here than over here and Deuteronomy must have had 16 authors and this is the evolution of the concept of Satan. I've heard all kinds of drivel. Oh, Jesus' death wasn't a, a sacrifice. It wasn't a substitute. That was a concept borrowed from pagan religion. All of this filth and heresy hangs around the halls of the professing church and it's easy to find. But there is a sure uh, and, and steadfast bulwark that we can raise against it when we understand the nature of God's revelation and his scripture. At the proper time, God manifests in Jesus Christ at the incarnation what he prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that there would come a, a seed of the woman who would crush Satan, said, though he would bruise his heel. This is powerful. This is the nature of God's revelation. And Paul recognized that through the preaching of God's word rightly, our attention can be drawn to the glorious unfolding of God's purposes in time. And the apex of those purposes is of course manifest in the incarnation, which we celebrate culturally this time of year. When God became man, Emmanuel, and dwelt among us, the only possible way for him to keep the law and, and as a man fully and then be sacrificed as an atonement for our sin and for his righteousness to be transferred to us. And this is what Paul means when he said, when he says that at the proper time that God manifests in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And finally, that last phrase, by the command of God our Savior, reminds us of something that Eric mentioned briefly before. That brothers in the faith and sisters, I would add, are truly brothers and sisters if they both fear the Lord. There is a reverence and an awe and a respect and a, respect and a holy weight of realization of the glory of the gospel that we ought to have in our affections 
Repent if it isn't there. And rush to hear the preaching of the word. And to enter into worship. And to spend time in the scriptures if we ever feel it wane. And ask God that it might grow. Because this gospel was not just something that was optional and an idea or career path that Paul was free to choose to pursue, but instead it was a command given by God, our Savior. I command you as my slave, my doulos, to take this message that is of utmost importance, eternal life and death, hinge on its proclamation in truth and deliver it to the elect. And as Paul is faithful to do this, mighty things happen. Not, account, not on account of him, but on account of his faithfulness to the Lord. Motivated by a fear of him. Brothers and sisters, let us fear. With this introduction, Paul sets the tone for us to consider our calling as the church of Jesus Christ. With the context of this astounding salutation, I'm reminded again of Matthew 22, verse 33. While the Pharisees and the Sadducees scoffed, while the skeptics and the naysayers of the day just wrote Christ off and found excuses to ignore him, there were others who were astonished at his teaching. I looked in the original language, and that word literally means to be struck out of self-possession of one's own senses. That ought to be the response we have when we encounter the truth of God's holy word. It would strike us out of self-possession of our very faculties and senses. Leave us amazed and awestruck. I think that's the intent that Paul has with this powerful salutation. That's what he would, uh, in, that's, that's what he would engender as response to this greatness, to the greatness of the gospel. This ekplaso, this astonishment to be uh, totally moved and awestruck by the word of God is something that he knew personally and sought to convey through this letter. Uh, Calvin writes, They who enact a dumb show in the midst of idleness and luxury are excessively impudent in boasting that they are the successors of the apostles. Those who enact a dumb show, that is, they just put on airs, they pretend to be a Christian, they, they, they do the good spiritual things, the obligations, and they clock in on the time card of Christian life and duties. Or uh, uninspired preachers who who'd simply go along uh, just as a career path or whatever form it might take. Those who enact a dumb show, a pretense, a hip hypocritic air, hypocritical airs in the midst of idleness and luxury are excessively impudent in boasting that they are the successors of the apostles. In other words, the faith that has been, has been delivered to you and I came on the broken, torn, stoned, shipwrecked, beaten back of slaves of Jesus Christ. The least that we can do is hold it as precious, to guard it, against corruption to keep it close to our per person and re and and remember how rare and beautiful it is not everyone has the privilege after all of being the elect and there ought to be a fearful and a joyful thankfulness 
that naturally overflows at the thought of why me, Lord? Why did you save me, Lord? Help me to give you glory as I behold that stunning reality. After this amazing introduction, Paul closes his salutation with a tender note, illustrating the personal relationship, the personal relational power that the gospel has to brothers in Christ, for example. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Oh, Paul is famous for this. Soaring truths of transcendent eternal reality and touching moments of personal connection. That's the breadth of Christian life that you and I share in Christ. Then he says in benediction, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Nearly the same words that he closes his book with in 315. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Signed, Paul. You can imagine. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful as we behold the like precious faith that we share with the saints that have gone before and this moment of reflection, the great gift and priceless treasure that salvation in Jesus Christ truly is. I pray for myself and all of the hearers in this room that we would live like it. I pray that in so doing, we would testify to the truth as slaves, as servants of Jesus Christ for as many days as you call us to witness, to testify, to salt and light this earth. Thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation wrought before time and now manifest in our hearts. We are so thankful. We give you praise and glory, dear Jesus. And it is in your holy name we pray. Amen.